conclude the message with communion together, as well as a time of prayer, in which we're going to invite you forward, uh, not just to receive communion, to drink and eat of the Lord himself, but also uh, we'll have some prayer lines set up to pray for each other about the whole issue of warfare, which is the theme here of this passage. So uh, let's pray. This is a, a passage, I think, which is meant to be more experienced uh, than necessarily intellectually understood. So uh, let's ask the Lord to speak and move uh, here. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Scripture, which is alive which feeds us and transforms us and encourages us and challenges us and rebukes us all at the same time. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip us today and speak to us in Christ Jesus, you'd be formed in us. And, Lord, that you might lead us to the table, to eat and drink of you, to experience you. And then, Lord, we might pray for one another and be set free here to be the men and women you've called us to be. And, God, what you did in those 11 disciples, we ask you to do in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, again, this is Jesus' deathbed prayer, his final words prior to the cross, and it's recorded. It's the longest prayer that we have of Jesus recorded in the Scripture. It's really one of the only ones we have of a lengthy prayer prayed by Jesus, uh, and it's meant to be an instruction to us about how we pray, but also how we live. And, uh, but it teaches us so much. This John 17 prayer is, is phenomenal. And today is going to be, really, there's three parts I'm taking. Last week, two weeks ago, we did part one, which was verses one to uh, five about uh, Jesus just prayed for himself and his limits having finished the work the father had given him to do we talked about that and then this week in verses 6 to 19 which I'm not going to read the whole thing that's quite long he prays for the disciples the 11 uh, what's so amazing about this before I read it is the fact that he spends the bulk of this prayer praying not for the world in fact he's very clear I'm not praying for the world he prays for the remaining disciples of the 12 disciples. I mean, there's so many problems to be solved. I'm, I'm trying to think of myself in Jesus' shoes. I mean, you've got millions and millions of people living on earth at that time. You've got problems in every continent. You've got the Roman Empire that's immoral and godless and pagan. You've got abortions going on in the empire. You've got poverty, prostitution, his own family to be taken care of, his mom, and family breakdowns. But this enormous focus and energy of Jesus really you can almost call an obsession with the eleven with these guys and his prayer is focused on them and then those who are going to believe in the gospel through them but really he, that's all he focuses on and it's uh, they're the trophies of everything he's been about in fact he says you are the whole purpose of why I came died rose and ascended into heaven it's it it's for you and uh, all of his hope is wrapped up in them so let's begin at verse 6 I'm gonna jump to just the key verses in verses 6 to 19 he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Verse 9, I pray for them, again, the 12. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that we may be one, they may be one, as we are one. Verse uh, 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. 
My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Underline that. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, for they too may be truly sanctified. All right, amen. Now, Jesus is not praying for the world because the world, as he defines it here in this passage, is in rebellion against God, and there's no hope for the world. The only hope for the world is those whom he's called out, again, his own, whom he has chosen and put his hand upon, that they would get their acts together and go back in. Now, remember a few weeks ago we talked about uh, John 15, 16, which is kind of a verse that summarizes this theme. He says, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And remember, Jesus is that Shemekah rabbi with authority from heaven. And he calls men and women, he calls these disciples, basically saying, I believe in you. And he calls them to become like him in the way that they think, act, function, what they do, why they do it. In fact, they, their whole lives are now to be shaped by Jesus. He is the Shemekah rabbi there to follow. And uh, uh, in fact, he, and so he believes that they... And he believes that you can become like him. In fact, the God of the universe is not Star Wars, okay, the force, this impersonal thing. He is a personal God that thinks, acts, feels, is rational, rejoices. He's exalted over all the universe. The galaxies are like lint or like dust. Or, uh, yet this personal God moves into people's lives personally like you and me. And he creates in you an interest in him. A heart for him. And what are you doing here this morning? Somehow the Spirit of God grabbed hold of you at some point in your life and you began to move toward him. And as he offered you his righteousness, his free gift in the gospel, hopefully most of you here, you've received that. And then he himself entered your nature with his very substance and power and went into your life to live inside of you, and he planted his life in you, and he resurrected you. And with that new heart, new mind, and then he invited you to a mission to restore the brokenness in the world, to be part of what he's doing in the world. Now, uh, the big theme here in verse 17 is the word sanctify. Sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctify means to set apart, to be other, to be distinct, to be holy, to be separate. It's the word used for the temple was set apart, Jeremiah was set apart, the altar utensils were set apart, and God says, I put my hand on you, and I set you apart from the world. In other words, when you're on that subway train, you get your arms up and you're really crowded, you, you're hot, like you're hot right now, and you're saying, oh, I, I'm a little depressed, but I just, I don't feel like I fit in. There's something different about me. And he's saying, that's because there is something different about you. You are not of the world. I put my hand on your life. I chose you out of it, and I'm going to send you back into it. And you were made and created by God for a mission. In other words, everyone created in the image of God has a sense of mission. In fact, I was reading this, this atheistic uh, psychologist recently, and he was saying that, that you want to encourage people who are feeling meaninglessness and emptiness and lostness to engage in the world. Because even if we don't believe in God, it makes them feel better. But the Lord knows that he created you and made you for a mission, to be part of him and what he's doing in the world, to engage in the world. And, and you were called by God, to God, and for God, and you've been sent, just like these 11. And so what happens here 
is there, Jesus is basically praying for you. He's praying for the 12. That's the whole focus. You've got to just step back and feel what it means and let it hit you that he spends his time praying for the church. Thank you, thank you. You're a treasure, you've got worth, he's your Shmika Rabbi, and he knows that you've got a mission on your life. He made you, now he saved you, and he's sending you into the world to do something. But he knows at the same time there's an enormous warfare going on over your life. And one of the themes in this passage is, or in fact the major theme, is warfare. And you'll notice in verse 10, verse 11, I'm sorry, he says, protect them, Holy Father, by the power of your name. And then in verse 15, he goes, my prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. In other words, he knows that those are who are his own, who belong to him, who are Christians, are involved in a warfare so intense that he himself prays, knowing this prayer is essential for them to make it. It is good. Thank God for my wife. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And Jesus knows that Satan is very powerful. In fact, except you abide in him, you're finished. You got to hear that. Satan's power is limited. He's called the accuser. He's called a deceiver. He's called a destroyer. He's, his, his goal is the devil is to split you from relationships, split you from God, to move you away from simplicity and devotion to Christ. But that power of Satan is to be respected. Not in awe, but to be respected. And therefore, to be a Christian is dangerous. It's a pilgrimage, but it's a dangerous one. And so Jesus had to pray. And you've got to catch this. He loves the world so much that he's praying for me and you. He's praying for the 12. He's praying for you who are believers here. That's his intercession in heaven right now because if the world's ever going to be saved, touched, transformed, it's going to be through people like you and me through the church, those who have been called out of the world, whom he's sending back in. So what I want to do this morning, I want to just give you two themes, okay, that he's going to call for protection on. And there's so much in this passage. In fact, I probably, certain passages I study too much. I think I overdid it this time. But he's praying protection in two basic areas. And this is what I want you to go home with this morning. The first, he prays protection from satanic powers, from the evil one, so that you might live in the world, but not be of the world. That's number one. And we're going to talk about what that means. And then he prays protection that you would live in the truth, not lies. All right? So the first that he prays, why don't you put the overhead up, Michael? Now, the reason, verse 15 I'm sorry, verse 14. He ends verse 14 by saying, they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. In other words, if you feel like you don't fit in and you're a believer here, it's because you don't. You really are not of the world. You, you're different, just like Jesus was different. You have been set apart. Again, the word set apart or sanctified is mean you're, you're other, you're, you're separate, you're distinct. There's, you know, there's something about you that makes you different. And he says, protect them, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now, 
when I when Jesus is talking about I want you in the world in it but I don't want you of it the only picture I can get if you can imagine a little cottage on a snow-covered mountain and a little cottage is on the bottom and there's this huge avalanche and the snow just comes tumbling down and crushes the cottage that's what it feels like to live in the world the pressure that you're under to be in it and not of it that's how sometimes how impossible it feels or a better I like this illustration it's like being a little caterpillar trying to cross midtown Manhattan on 34th Street with traffic zooming at you and the pressure and intensity of that and you're trying to make it across in other words this to live in the world and not of it in our culture 1999 seems so impossible that I, I so wrestled with this text because what we are surrounded by and pressurized by is really frightening now in the days when Jesus was speaking John 17 the world was dominated by the, the Roman world which was dominated by something called Hellenism the Greek culture going back all the way to Plato now when Alexander the Great conquered the empire in 13, 323 320 BC 300 years before Christ the Greeks were a, a, a great powerful culture and they swept over the what was then the Roman Empire and when they entered societies and countries they changed everything they Hellenized it, it was called they changed the economy they changed the monetary system they changed the, the cities they changed the architecture they changed manufacturing they changed banking they changed trade they changed culture they changed the intellectual life they changed the language they changed science they changed literature they changed philosophy and their intent was to change all religion so when the, for over 300 years when Jesus is now speaking the entire empire has been thoroughly Hellenized in other words dominated by the Greeks in fact when the Roman Empire took power which is the greatest empire the world had ever known they were thoroughly Hellenized as well that's why they call the the Greco-Roman Empire because it was so dominated by the Greeks but when the Greeks built cities they, they had four major objectives they were to transform sports theater education and worship interesting isn't it? sports theater education and worship so they, if you look at how they excavated cities versus a Nazareth a Jewish town which tried to stay isolated these Hellenized cities are so different they got these big theaters and amphitheaters and these worship centers and temples but they took over because they wanted to move the Jews away from their gods the true living God to the Greek gods and so you got to understand that they were under the early Christians these 11 disciples are under pressure of hundreds and hundreds of years of this this powerful culture going back from Greece going hundreds of years which totally dominates the Roman Empire and Jesus says in verse 14 you the world you are on a collision course with the world there, there's no way this can match together they're 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 opposites and and they're clashing goes but but you've been set apart verse 17 sanctify them by the truth and you're not of the world even as I'm not in the world you've been you're 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 to be set apart you be sanctified what does that mean run away it just the I used to think it meant run away from the world and to run away from evil people you know oh, if I could only get away from my spouse I could really be holy I could really walk with God or if I could just get away from my kids or my boss I could really live this thing out you know it's not joining an Amish community although you maybe you've thought about it not too long maybe it's not joining a monastery it's not creating an us versus them mentality a oh, we're the believers 
and all those evil people out there. That's not what it means to be in the world, but not of it. It's not to be exclusive and create a little holy club we can be together and withdrawing from the world. It's not being super spiritual and going to church meetings every night uh, with your head in the stand and not knowing what's going on. To be in the world and not of it is really the best image to me is of Jesus being in Matthew's house. If you remember, in Matthew 9, we see Jesus inside the house with Matthew and the tax collectors and sinners. He's in the world. These are folks who have not yet repented. They're what we call today, they'd be the rapists, the child abusers, the extortionists, the losers, the failures, the rip-off artists, the prisoners, the sick, those whom they've, the, the world. And Jesus is in there with them, in Matthew's house, while the religious people are outside the house looking in. But he's in it, but he's not of it. Now, to be holy, to be sanctified, as Jesus is praying here, what he's saying is, I, that you would be engaging the world. You're in it, but you're engaging it in a mission. You're not just flowing along with a breeze. You're actually in it with a deep sense of mission to bring about change. Now, in other words, to engage, to be holy, is to engage in life with your talents, your gifts, your time, your energy. In other words, in the arena of everyday life, you're in the world. So say, for example, in your marriage, if you're married here today, that in your home, in your family. I mean, one of the great questions, how do I, ra how do I be a marriage? How do I raise my children to be in the world but not of it? Now, my children are in public school, like probably most of yours in this, in, in this place right now. To have our children in the world with all the pressure to be in style, to be cool and all that, but not to be of it. I mean, friends, it is a challenge for any parent. I mean, what does it mean to, to, to be Jesus to be in your marriage where you're in the world as a, as a marriage, but you're not just flowing with everybody else, but you're distinct. It's, it's looking at life with the interruptions that come your way, and they're not interruptions, it's God somewhere's in this. Interruptions are part of my life where God's in it. Or at work, it's not that I take a half hour during lunch and pray, which is helpful, and not a bad thing at all. It's in the world that that power lunch, that you're, that you're in it, in Christ. Or you're with that obnoxious co-employee at the at, in the office, but you're in it. You're in the world with that person, with that fellow employee, or your entrepreneurship, or you're studying as a student. But you're in it with everybody else. But you're distinct because you're bringing Christ and you're engaging those around you in Christ. In other words, it's lifting society. It's lifting the culture. I mean. Friends, what do we want? What, why are we thinking about buying a building? It's because we want to be in the world, not to have a club, but to be in it, but not of it. To be distinct, but to be deeply immersed in the culture and the world around us. The problem with living in America is that we don't get persecuted, but we do get seduced. It's an incredible, it's an incredible avalanche. Again, it's like a cottage being in an avalanche coming down on us. The culture is so powerful to just get us in the world and then suck us into it. Where before you know it, we're not distinct any longer. We're just like everybody else. In fact, you know, it's amazing to me how we can have church buildings on blocks after blocks, but the city's crumbling. Or we're supposed to have so many believers in so many different places in, in, the, in the city structure of New York, but yet so little change. Now, we thought we could buy, and part of this, we thought we could buy the American dream of life and also live the gospel, and we can't. You've got to hear this. I've said it once before. 
In other words, we've made ourselves at home in a culture where Jesus said, don't ever be at home. Don't ever plant your tent here, your home here. You're passing through. In other words, the American dream, which is I live for my comfort. I live for me. I live for more money and more possessions and easier lifestyle. And, and I live to accumulate. I live, I'm obsessed with being up to date and looking good and what people think and money and position and a busy, frantic life where there's no reflection. You know, I was asked by a reporter this past week, he says, don't you ever, do you ever struggle with just throwing it all out and just going to make a lot of money? And I wanted to say, nah. But I figured, why lie? Of course. Now, Jesus says, I want you in the world, but not of it. So yes, you may be making money and accumulating some possessions and, and moving up the ladder in your, in your career and studying hard, but the point is that's not your life. You're not attached to it. The New York Times had an article this past week about parents paying coaches, uh, private coaches, $70 an hour to coach their kids in Little League. It was a great article. And uh, 70 bucks an hour for Little League coaching, as one parent said this, I do it for his self-esteem. He was getting to the point where he wanted to quit. I mean, that's a lot of money. But just being wrapped up where, God forbid, that he wouldn't make it on the team, you know, or, or stay on the team. But what does it mean for you to be in the world and not of it? You have to wrestle with what it looks like for you to be in the world and not of it. Because that's what Jesus is praying right now for you. The very point when Jesus says in 1 John, the whole world's under the control of the evil one, he says, um, uh, stay away from idols, flee idolatry. In other words, the temptation is to get attached to something else besides him. In other words, idolatry is to bow down to anything but God, whether it's money, whether it's approval, whether it's comfort, which is so big in America, whether it's security, whether it's your family, whether it's money, whether it's control, whether it's power. In other words, to say yes to Jesus and to say no to everything else in the world that says, I want your heart, I want your attachment. In other words, the gospel, you've got to hear this, is on a collision course. You can't have both, the gospel and the world. That's his point. I, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And the evil one's goal is to slowly seduce you and slowly get you in where you just become part of the world. And the American culture right now, which we export worldwide, is as powerful a force as the disciples were facing here in the first century. And it's a collision course. And so we spend our time, our lives, trying to avoid, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, weeping, mourning with those who are sick, crying over sin, our limits, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, weakness. We, 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 the, the culture doesn't encourage these things. So you, I hope you're saying to yourself, like I said to myself all week, I, I don't know, I can't do it. The pressure's too great to be in the world and not of it. Now, and I know where many of you work and live and the pressures you're under. It's enormous. I mean, when I look at Jesus praying for these 11 guys and spending all this energy praying for them to be protected from the evil one in warfare, that they might live a life set apart for the mission God had called them to, I'd say, Jesus, you better pray for somebody else. I don't think it's going to work. I mean, you better pray for them a bigger general prayers, but that's, that's a long shot. Well, 
John 17, the answer is, is how do you expect to do this? It is impossible. But John 17 is part of John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Remember those two messages about the Holy Spirit will come to live in you. God says, I'll make my home in you, John 14, 23. And then about I am the vine and you are the branches. Except you abide in me, you will bear no fruit. But if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And like the nutrients in the water come up from the ground through the branch, through the vine, into the branches. He says, if you will abide and remain in me, my life and power will pulsate through you. And the life you live will not be your life and your strength and your striving and your energy, but it'll be my life's striving moving through you. And what happens here is as God enters our nature and interpenetrates our nature and the Holy Spirit and the vine, the branches, he says that becomes a reality. And that's the only way it could ever happen. And so Satan, what his desire is, you've got to hear it, he says protected from the evil one is to cut you off from abiding in the vine. It's to cut you off from a life relying on the Spirit. It's to do anything, however possible, where you're no longer drawing on the strength of the nutrients coming up from the life of God in your own heart and to get you to live life on your own strength and energy. And you know what happens? You get sucked in and you drown. And so Jesus says, Father, protect them. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. I want them in the world, deeply in the world, but not of it. But it's a power that's not from heaven. He understands, Jesus understands that the evil one's desire is to cut you off. So I want to ask you today, where are you right now in that whole warfare? Because there's a warfare going on over your life right now. It's real. Jesus knows it's real. It's not a game. And he knows that unless you abide in him and remain in him and allow the spirit of God to fill you and usher you, you don't have a prayer. You don't have a prayer. Willpower, strength of decision is never going to make it. But he'll be your counselor and show you along the way. Now, there's one more theme in this passage. And go down to number the second point, which is he says protect them, protection to live in the world and not of it. But the second is protection to live in the truth. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Again, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. He's talking about the truth about God, truth about ourselves, truth about other people. This is a book called How the News Makes Us Dumb, The Death of Wisdom in an Information Society, which I read a couple months ago. And it talked about how there's 24 hours a day we get news, millions of columns of newspaper and TV, constant news, news, news baragement. It's a business. And they've got to create a addictive people who've got to buy a newspaper every day because that's how they make money. And it's almost like a striptease, this guy was saying to get you to come back the next day for more. And uh, how it reduces complex issues to very simple issues. And, and the author talked about all these demonstrations, how the news is, is different depending on which paper you read. And he gave examples, for example, the Boston Globe in 1989 had a headline, no improvement in Marcos's condition. The Boston Herald the same day said, Marcos shows improvement. You know, the New York Times in 1993 said, the United States sees a wider Somalia role Washington Post the same day said exit plans for Somalia stepped up. 1995, New York Times, Greenspan sees chance of recession. Washington Post the same day, recession is unlikely, Greenspan concludes. The truth is that there's so much information flying around, truth is just thrown around so flippantly. But Jesus says, the degree to which you're in truth 
is the degree to which you're free. And so he, he said, I pray they would not live in denial, illusions, that, that's the realm of the demonic, but they'd be set free and they'd be protected from the evil one that would want to fill them with lies. And, and so it's like the rich young ruler. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He came, but he was blind. He was unaware. The truth was that um, he, 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 he couldn't see. He thought reality was power and success and people looking at him as a rich young ruler. And, and he wanted God, but he wanted the American dream. He wanted both. And uh, Jesus invited him to the truth, which was, for you, you're too attached to this, let it go and come follow me. And he walked away very sad. Addiction's a terrible thing. We have a number of folks in 12-step groups. As you know, addiction breeds lies. Addicted people lie a lot because Satan is the father of lie. But Jesus knows Satan wants to cut us off from living in truth about God, truth about ourselves, and truth about each other. He, again, it's a warfare going on to cut you off, slice you up, because truth is the greatest ally of God. Now look in verse 17. He says, how are they going to be set apart? By the truth. Your word is truth. So, in other words, truth is the greatest ally of God versus illusion, naming it. So, on one level, for example, I mean, the very obvious level, your word is truth, is, is you know, the Bible. I mean, as, as, you, as, you, as you get in the word and you digest it, uh, it, it, you know, it transforms us and, and enables us to live in truth. So say, for example, the Bible says, you know, don't have sex outside of marriage. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul doesn't say, just don't do it. He, he, he gives truth. And he says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you belong to God and how precious you are and don't throw yourself away in a cheap way. And, and he argues with them. He gives them truth about who they are and says, don't just, he, he convinces them by truth and he gives them power through the truth to live holy and pure lives. Or if you're anxious, he goes, don't you know, Jesus says, Matthew 25, that the, don't worry about, look at the birds and the fields and the lilies, and they're not worrying, and God takes care of them. Is he going to take care of you? And he says, he says don't, don't think about it, don't you know? Or, or he talks about your self-image, don't you know who you are, and you're a treasure, you're the apple of God's eye. And, you know, setbacks and suffering, don't you know that all things work together for good of those who love God, and even those who planned evil against you, God's going to weave it for good, and... In other words, don't you know? And he, he said, the truth is going to move you along. But there's another level in which, you know, God loves the truth and the truth about who we are and as the Bible speaks of it. And in other words, God loves us right what, he loves what is, not what should be, but just what is. In other words, what, what am I? And, and the truth of, um, you know, sometimes the things I don't like in other people are very much in me that I'm a hypocrite. The things I hate in people are really things about me I don't like. And the truth is that I'm radically broken. I have holes in my soul. Powerless, some of you like that. But the parts of me that are most broken are the gift of God to other people. That's the truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's through weakness that God's strength and grace flows. That's the truth. It's not disguising or covering up the weakness and broken parts of our soul. It's being truthful about them that his power might rest on us. It's facing the limitations of my interior world. It's recognizing the poor parts of myself. Now, I like what one author said, the two essential ingredients for anybody to grow spiritually is humility, honesty, number one, and the second is humility, to be honest. In other words, it's, this is protection to live in the truth and he goes, Lord, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. So one level the word, another level just the truth about us and about life. 
But again, I look at that and I say, Lord, it's so difficult. I mean, I just quoted you the newspaper stuff. There's so much pressure. Well, just go on. I'm not going to develop number three because we'll get to it. But he, the third big prayer is he protects them against, he prays protection against isolation. He prays they might be one even as we are one. And in other words, you can't live this out alone. And one of the things, you know, you'll notice in verse uh, 11, he prays they might be one even as we are one. The whole rest of the prayers for their unity and oneness. You can't be protected. You can't live in the world and not of it. You can't live in the truth without brothers and sisters, without a body. The church means called out ones. Ecclesia means called out of the world and being sent into it. And so we're a people being called out to be sent in. And he knows that in isolation from mature brothers and sisters who can help us live in truth, that can guide us in being in the world but not of it, it's not possible. So yes, it's the spirit of the living God. It's the, the nutrients and the pulsating life of Jesus pumping through my body. But it is in relationship with other folks who are walking this out. And so the, another huge protection he prays is they would not get cut off from the body. That's why this unity thing is such a dif difficult thing. What's it going to take for you to live in the truth? You have to ask yourself that question. What does it take for you to live in truth? What kind of fellowship do you need? What kind of classes do you need? What kind of cell groups do you need? What kind of training? What kind of mature people do you need to be around to live in the truth? You know, the truth is some of us run to TV to get away from the sadness and high parts of our own souls that we don't like. And so we run away and, and just medicate ourselves in TV and bury ourselves. But what is it for you to, what's it going to take for you to live in the truth? Because Jesus is praying, protect them to live in the truth. It takes tremendous humility and courage to live in the truth. And everything in our culture moves us away from it. Now, this prayer is about warfare. Again, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, here's what I want us to do. We're going to take communion together, and then we're going to have prayer. Jesus has a call and plan for your life. He has a mission for you. He has something for you to become like him and something for you to do. In fact, your, 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 your soul down deep knows it. You were made for something more for your, than just yourself to serve others, to help others, to advance the kingdom of God. You have a purpose and mission, and the evil one wants to cut you off from that. Cut you off from people, get you in denial and untruth, and get you seduced by the world. We are no different than anybody else. It's like an avalanche. And Jesus prayed.